When our post-everything world has turned life upside down, how do you even know which end is up? If you're committed to a community or a cause greater than yourself, you don't have the luxury of checking out or the freedom to burn out. It's not enough to just keep surviving. We need to thrive again. This is Post Everything. A podcast about remapping culture and rethinking leadership in a liminal age. Welcome to Post Everything. This is a new podcast about, well, everything and also not really. We are going to be engaging in a wide variety of topics, basically anything that you might intersect with in terms of living ordinary and everyday life, leading in whatever organization or institution that you are entrusted with that responsibility for, understanding the way that the social fabric is shifting and changing underneath us and otherwise trying to just make sense of the world around us. And so I'm joined here with my good friend of over 15 years now, John Homus, and I'm Brad Edwards. We are both church planters in very, very, very different places. And I'm not just talking about the humidity. And we are hoping that in our roles as co-hosts, we are able to not offer expertise so much as report back what we are trying to wrestle with ourselves and our capacities and roles as leaders and church planters and kind of wrestle with this very live with you. And so we hope that this is conversational and actually tangibly helpful, because if it's not, it's really not worth doing on our end. Absolutely. And um, and yeah, so thanks for signing up. And one aspect we really need to start off with here is this language that we have in our subtitle, which is remapping culture and rebuilding leadership in a liminal age, right? Yes. And John... <laughs> When we were talking about this, when I first used the word liminal, you asked me, like, okay, you're going to have to define that for me because this is not part of our normal language. And so what does it mean to live in a liminal age? And But before you answer that question, know that this is going to be part one of three in answering that question in a very, very big picture sense. And so today we're going to really jump in directly into what you are probably experiencing, like what you are feeling in this liminal age, because you may not have even realized that that's actually what it is that you're in the midst of. But I can almost guarantee I would probably put money on the fact that there are three things we're going to talk about today you can identify with, you can resonate with. And so let's just talk about definitions though, John, what do we mean when we use this word liminal? What are we talking about when we're talking about a liminal age? Yes. Well, Brad, I'm so glad to be on this podcast with you. And I do have to confess that when you use the word liminal, I did say, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I probably should know what it means, but I don't. So define it for me. And you did. And um, when we talk about liminal, what we mean is that we are in a time of transition. What was before is no longer, and what is coming isn't exactly clear. So it's liminal is a transitional phase where we are post something and we're heading into something that's next, and we're trying to figure out what that thing is. So we can say very confidently in the year of our Lord, 2022, we are post everything. And here's what we mean by that word post everything and how that connects with liminal. Maybe you're familiar with the term postmodern and you know that that term has been around for a while. And we use that term a lot, even up to five years ago. I haven't heard it as much recently, but we are talking about being post a lot of other things. So think about 20 years ago, we started a post 9-11 world. 2015, we became a post-Michael Brown's death world. George Floyd happened a few short years after that, post-George Floyd. Now, in 2022, we are post-pandemic. And even as we talk about the influence of Judeo-Christian values in our culture, a lot of people are using the term post-Christian. Now, all these posts mean that we are no longer where we were, but we are heading somewhere else. And we're not exactly sure what that looks like. So we're in this liminal space. Yeah. And I think what's really important and helpful about that, John, is to distinguish that from kind of, you know, kind of ordinary change or an ordinary in-between or transition is there's something like this is happening on a far more fundamental level when it comes to the shared values and assumptions that we have on society that because we don't have to work those out all the time, we can rely upon that as a foundation and build from there. So it's time saving, it's very efficient, but it's also, it cultivates unity and connection. But when the assumptions 
And the values are being questioned and are changing so fundamentally and so across the board. Like I love that you mentioned things that had to do with science and technology in terms of our response to the pandemic, you know, religious and and spiritual values, race relations, terrorism. Like there's nothing that this liminal age is not affecting and even infecting in terms of its questioning of assumptions and values. So I just think that's so huge. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you think about eras where a decade could be considered an era in, you know, maybe American or Western history. And it just feels like every two or three years, the world is completely different. Mm-hmm. And so things are, are just changing. And we're asking the question, well, what lasts? Mm. Um, if everything's changing, what's going to be consistent, not just 10 years from now, but even three years from now? And that's why one of the key phrases we're looking at here is remapping culture. How do we understand the ground that we're standing on as it's constantly shifting? Our maps don't seem to work anymore when we think about culture, Mm -hmm. when we think about humanity. One of my friends uses this great Wayne Gretzky quote where Wayne Gretzky, the great hockey player, said he was so great not because he skated to where the puck was, but because he skated to where the puck was going to be. And I think in one sense, Mm. in this podcast, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to figure out culture's heading somewhere, society's heading somewhere. Where is it heading as everything keeps changing? Let's try and skate and get to that place now. Yeah, and it's very difficult to understand, like, how do we get there and where do we go if we don't understand where we are now? So this is why... We're really kind of spending three full episodes focusing on life in a liminal age because it helps situate that work and that effort of going where the puck is going to be, right? And so where we are now, I think the best illustration I've come across, I'm actually indebted to Mike Cosper on this one. He used this illustration toward the beginning of his really great book on Esther and the story of Esther in the Old Testament. And that illustration is this idea of the airport as a liminal space, right? We're talking about a liminal age, but think about it in more concrete terms as an airport, right? An airport is an in-between space. You are in that space because you are leaving something where you have been, but you're not yet at- You're going somewhere else. Yeah, you're going somewhere else, but hopefully- you know where you're going, right? You know, you could be flying on standby, I guess. Uh, but, and you've got some tickets and you're hoping to get there. But it's an in-between space. It's a liminal space. And what we are going through and experiencing is your flight just got canceled or delayed, right? And what happens, like when you're in an airport and you're waiting at your gate and that change is introduced, even before it is announced on the intercom, you see that there's a buzz happening around the desk and the the gate agent right there, right? People are realizing something's changed. You can see the crowd shift and move and you hear sighs and people talking and the murmuring goes up in volume because it's spreading throughout. And so you can see it ripple socially through the people in proximity to you. That change happened before you're even explicitly aware of it or have language for it, right? So that alone is really a helpful illustration. But think about, too, the design of an airport, right? So at Denver International Airport, you know, I'm in Boulder County, uh, about 40-minute drive and fly out of there anytime. And there's a great restaurant in the terminal that has a Southwest Airlines. And the restaurant's name is Root Down. And it's actually really impressive. The layout for it is so hyper-designed to be hyper-efficient for seating as many people comfortably in a space, but with privacy as you possibly can. It's actually kind of ingenious in the, in the way that they do it. But you're not comfortable, right? The efficiency of the space and the temporary transitory nature of that space and that need affects the comfort level. And just like the rest of the airport, it is not designed for staying there long term. It is not designed for settling in and making yourself at home or experiencing hospitality. It is extremely uncomfortable. So the space itself is not designed for it, and that enhances the discomfort and the frustration and the stress that you would already be experiencing if you had a delayed or canceled flight. Right. Well, no one is really comfortable in the Denver airport with how many conspiracies you guys have about that airport. So, um, Oh, dude, that's, a, that's, a, 
that's that a is whole a, another podcast. That's a whole nother episode. Yeah, we, we should totally go there. It, you know, <laughs> when we get into disinformation and misinformation, we'll uh, right. we'll totally broach that topic. But you know, the experience of being in an airport too, especially if you have a delayed flight or it's been canceled and you don't know what's coming next. Yeah, you don't know when that ambiguity is going to be resolved. There's this weird kind of reality and time distortion effect, right? You can look down at your watch, you know, if you have a watch instead of a phone like they used to have. You can look down at the time and realize, well, I feel like I've been here for two hours, but it's actually been 10 minutes. Yeah. Right? The waiting and the uncertainty of what's next makes the present so much longer. I tell people, I'd say it as a joke all the time, but it is, and people laugh in that kind of like, I'm laughing instead of crying kind of way um, by saying like, 2020 was the longest decade of my life. <laughs> and there's a reason for that, right? Yeah. That's actually, that's how it works, right? And so all this to say, when you are in this in transition space, it's uncomfortable. And the discomfort is part of what contributes to how you can see the change just ripple through. It's its, its own unique ecosystem. And so we're in a unique ecosystem that most of us have not experienced before and probably no generation has since that decade following World War II. So that is wow. not in the generational memory of anyone except, you know, boomers' parents. So let's talk about that. So like these are great analogies and kind of high-level concept, but what is it, John, can you help us put words to what it feels like to live through that in the equivalent of that liminal space of an airport? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think that whole airport analogy, there's just so far we could go with that. I mean, I was thinking about a diverted flight I had when I was actually on the plane. We were probably on the plane 20 minutes, not knowing what was going to happen, but it felt like two days. Oh, man. And um, the lack of control we had, you know, and just not knowing how we get to the place where we know, that's a great illustration. And oh, man, is it so much worse if you have kids? It's so much worse. Yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's not go there. Let's yeah, not go there. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we talked about this great quote from Alan Noble in his book, uh, You Are Not Your Own. He says that to live in a high-tech, ultra-mobile society of sovereign individuals and perpetually changing norms is to be haunted with disorientation and disequilibrium. Now, there's a lot there, but listen to what he goes on to say. Mm. We feel as if we are untethered, floating in space, free to move, but unable to touch the ground. All bonds feel tentative and uncertain. Our place in the world feels speculative and subject to change. Our anxiety over belonging makes us highly sensitive to the flaws and betrayals and disappointments that attend all human efforts at community. I, I love that phrase, free to move, but unable to touch the ground. Kind of like a diverted flight, huh? Yes. Very, very good. Very good. Free to move about the cabin, but you, you, you can't get out of the cabin. You can't get out of the cabin. Yeah. One of the things that was interesting being post-pandemic, we now have a little bit of clarity on some of the things that the pandemic exposed. And one of the things that it exposed was just our hyper-individualism. Um, another term we use for individualism is just self-belonging and not everyone has access to that level of individualism. We think that there's actually the more wealth you have, the more privilege you have, the more you're able to be an individual or individualistic, but thinking individually about ourselves, which we did a lot during the pandemic, isn't sustainable long-term. Yeah. And the disconnect, even though it's something that we can technically sustain, it has this terrible impact on us because Alan Noble, again, and you are not your own, he describes how we are basically living in an artificial captivity and an environment of our own design that we have made for ourselves. But it's based on an anthropology that actually is not accurate. It does not line up with the way that we have been made and created and designed. And that has massive implications. He uses this amazing analogy of zoocosis, right? And so if you've ever gone to the zoo and you go to the lion pit, and it's one of the bigger enclosures at, at any zoo, and you look at the lions, and if you ever watch in like National Geographic or a nature documentary, you will probably notice that the lions behave very differently in captivity. 
in the savannah, they're moving or they're resting. They're either hunting or they're sleeping. In captivity, you see them pacing. And you see them pacing not just actually in particular places. And there are ruts and worn paths in their environment, in their enclosure, because they pace in the same places. And that's because you can make the environment look as natural and seem as natural as it is, but it cannot be natural if it is artificial. There is a limit to that, right? The line can still smell the very un-African hot dogs that are cooking, <laughs> you know, like 60 feet away. Yeah. They are not genetically used to hearing the laughter of children in close proximity to them, especially while eating, right? There are so many aspects that you cannot replicate to make natural. And it has this effect on them. And the only way that they have to be able to address those is to address the symptoms. They can't fix it. And so they literally put lions on antidepressants. Wow. And who knew we could identify so strongly with captive lions? Wow. Right. And so we have our own zucosis and living in this liminal age um, that we are not made for. And so we want to kind of talk about these three primary buckets or categories or symptoms of what it feels like to be living in this time and place right now. I want to maybe give a quick disclaimer too. John and I are talking about this from a very particular perspective, and it cannot be universal. It's not global. It is distinctly American evangelical. It's you know one that's defined by our ministry experience and as well as other kind of leadership roles we've had outside of the church. But we're both white, and there is a very real limit to how broadly we can speak. And so if some of these you don't experience or you think there should be something added to this list, you're probably right. In fact, yeah. there are more, way more than three ways that we experience this liminal age right now. These are just, I think, some of the most top of mind and on the surface of our experience that I think most of us can connect with. Okay. So here are the three, right? And we're going to work through these one by one, but the three are uh, loneliness, loneliness as, as both social fracturing and isolation. And number two, a loss of capacity. And there's like three aspects of that one. And then a disorientation. And these flow really well into one another. But John, can you kick us off with this symptom of what, what are we talking about when we're saying that loneliness is a symptom of our zucosis or this liminal age that we are in the midst of? Yeah, it's strange to even think about that because we're so connected and we're always communicating with each other, whether it's emails or direct messages or text messages. Mm. Um, yet the Washington Post put out this article last month where they studied the average amount of time Americans were spending with friends. And 2010 to 2013, people were spending about six and a half hours per week with friends. Now, you know, maybe that's four or five or six outings with friends. But what they noticed in this study is that that six and a half hours began to decline in by 2014. And by 2019, that six and a half hours per week with friends went down to four hours per week. Well, now six and a half to four, maybe doesn't seem like much, but that's a 37% decline from five years before. Now, why is that? Well, maybe the connection that we have, such as social media, is actually keeping us from physical time in each other's proximity. Maybe we're not actually hanging out in real life because we're talking all the time on social media. Hmm. Maybe it's political polarization. We just don't want to be around people that don't think like us. The article says that all those things play into this loneliness that we're experiencing. Maybe it's in feeling, but it's definitely in the fact that we're just spending more time by ourselves. And that has to do with adults and teenagers. Now, that sounds bad, but that doesn't sound catastrophic. What's the really bad news here? Well, you think about just teenagers hanging out. Kids all the time want to be with their friends. I almost have a teenager and they want to be with their friends more and more and more. But you look at this and you think about it, the development of a human being in 2010 to 2013, the average American teenager spent 11 hours fewer with friends each week in 2021. So in other words, 
from 2010 to 2021, there's 11 fewer hours per week Whoa. with friends that the average American teenager spent. And how much of a teenager's development is based on them being around their peers? We don't quite know what the development is going to look like for kids, but that's something we got to be thinking about. Wow. Yeah. I remember from that article, there's it is both a decrease in time spent with friends, but also the choosing to be alone had 12 additional hours per week, which is an mm. almost 50% increase. And that wow. did not recover as the pandemic lockdowns ended. Like that actually mm. continued to worsen and we have not recovered. That is, wow. that is startling. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Yeah. It just makes me think about just to kind of build into that airport illustration a little bit, Right. Because there's this isolation, the kind of choosing to be alone, but that doesn't paint the full picture of the why, right? But it makes sense when we remember that we're living in this liminal space. It's like an airport. And have you ever had an argument with your spouse, with your wife in an airport, John? I'm sure I have, and I'm sure it had something to do with shuffling the kids through the airport. So I'm guessing yes. Yeah, I didn't. You must be like not as good of a husband, but I, I definitely have it myself. <laughs> no, of course, there's no way that that doesn't happen. Because the frustration and tension in an airport is exponentially more likely because you're in a liminal space. The liminal space, the constant change requires an attention and a focus. Even if you're not ADD like I am, it's going to incentivize frustration and tension far more than it will kindness or intimacy. Yeah, you want to get to the next place. And when you want to get to the next place, you want to get out of there where yeah. you are. And so, <laughs> and kindness gets in the way of that. Right, it does. And if anybody's wincing at that, like, I'm just saying what you're thinking. Yeah, well, it's interesting. A book that I read at the beginning of the year, Barna put out this book called The Loneliness Epidemic by Susan Metz. She did a ton of research, but she interviewed a therapist named Sharon Hargrave, and she just said that a lot of times, even in our society, we are unkind in the sense that we use the word toxic too broadly. Now, what mm. she was getting at is in this moment that we're in, we're quicker to cut people off who don't line up with our expectations or our needs. And so mm -hmm. it was interesting to think about, you know, the airport illustration. Not only are we less kind to our traveling partners when we're stressed, but in this place where we're traveling together to figure out where we're going as a culture, we're less kind to each other. You know what that helps actually kind of illustrate too, and it bears pointing out that the pandemic worsened and accelerated something that was already happening. Because I can remember back as early as like, I don't know, 2012, 2014, you know, when I first started seeing friends share statements or this kind of attitude and posture of like, if somebody's going to be a constant presence of negativity in your life, you need to cut them out of your life. They don't get the right to speak into your life. And it's just like, man, if you actually follow that to its ultimate conclusion, you're gonna be one lonely person. Absolutely. Because we started seeing that as like an existential threat to our dignity, value and worth instead of the way it is hopefully and not always intended, which is faithful wound of a friend to encourage you in your own growth. And so there are so many things that, and attitudes and kind of cultural trajectories that the pandemic just like lit a match to. And we're experiencing that at a significantly more coalesced time and concentration in ways that feel very surprising. So yeah, that makes a ton of sense. The second symptom of living in a liminal age is this kind of across the board loss of capacity. Man, John, I remember when Bryce and I first started, everything just changed. The last podcast, I, when I did with that with him, we interviewed a therapist who particularly worked with pastors and leaders. His name is Chris Bruno. He's out of Fort Collins, Colorado. And this was in June of 2020. And in our conversation with him, we were kind of asking like, hey, as a counselor, as a therapist in just three months into the pandemic and this lockdown and the stress that that's introducing... What are you seeing as a counselor who are trying to help, especially leaders, continue to flourish in this really unprecedented, really difficult time in which people using the word unprecedented happened way too much anyway, right? <laughs> he summed it up amazingly. He said, we're going to have to grapple with something. And that is that mere humans, we mere humans have been enabled by technology to function 
in our day-to-day as superhumans, but this pandemic is forcing us and going to further force us to be fully human. And that is going to feel like we are being forced to be subhuman. But because we have been operating at a capacity that is not finite, it's actually leveraging. It's almost like an early transhumanism, the way that we use technology now. It's going to feel like we are subhuman. And that requires a shift and a change in expectations of ourselves and others that, man, if there's anything that I see more prevalent in our local, in my local church, it is this. It is a loss of capacity and a difficulty in understanding like, okay, how much change does this actually require of me, right? And so like, we've kind of talked through three dimensions. Jump on the first one here, John. Right. So one is emotional, relational capacity. Life is just more stressful than it used to be. And that takes energy away. I also work as a business coach besides being a pastor. So I coach entrepreneurs and salesmen and business leaders. And one of the things I do encourage a lot of my clients to do, a lot of them are type A go-getters, and they just couldn't fire on all levels Hmm. in what they were doing. And so I kind of found this illustration to help them see the reality they were living in. And thankfully, it lines up with the airport. But you know how at the airport, they have those moving walkways. Oh, yeah. That's to get you from one terminal to the next. Well, imagine the direction of the walkway gets flipped and you have to get from terminal A to terminal B. Now, you might be in great shape. You might be able to sprint a mile, (laughs) but all of a sudden you're going against the grain and you're wondering why you can't get where you want to go. Well, that's the reality, I think, of living in a liminal age is you just have less capacity maybe as it relates to being in social situations with other people, maybe life is so stressful that you're just having to deal with being more tired as you manage your own emotions. And we're finding that people are less able to do what they thought was normal. Mm. One example we've talked about is people getting back into gear of going to church. So you might have someone who goes to church and you ask them, Did you get something out of it? And they say, yes. Did you talk with your friends? Yes. Do you feel spiritually nourished? Yes. But you're still having a hard time getting out of bed and going to church in the pattern that you did before the pandemic. Hmm. And they say, yes. And I think that's the reality. I, I think everything is just harder to get back in what we might say a regular pattern because we have a loss of capacity. Man, I cannot get over actually your point about these type A leaders that you're coaching and I can relate to how unbelievably discouraging it is, right? I was actually processing this with a couple of friends where like, man, if you know me, you know that I kind of lead with enthusiasm. Really? I know. You do? Man, I would have never guessed. (laughs) I know, right? It is in so many ways. It is my excitement that is infectious and at first and then, you know, something more informed, right? (laughs) But (laughs) for sure. But that's what, I so rely on that personally. And I was processing with a couple of friends who are pastors and just talking about like, man, who the hell am I if I don't have that? Like, that's my superpower. How do I lead? Like, how does Superman lead if he can't fly? Like, who is Superman yeah. if he can't fly? Like, it yeah. just Wow, you're getting it, into like, not just a loss of capacity, but like, who am I? I big identity questions that come from this loss of capacity. Oh yeah. And what is the change that is required? You know, I have a counselor for this reason. I pay him more than (laughs) I pay you. So (laughs) let's keep going here. But like this second dimension of this kind of loss of capacity is like, okay, we've got emotional and relational capacity that's been diminished, but also decision-making. And I can't remember if I heard this somewhere or if, if I made this up, I have no idea. But the language of agency amnesia, I just have like latched onto right? Because every time you adapt, you're making a decision to adapt. You either are making a decision to adapt or to remain inflexible. Either way, you're making a decision. And so every time you are visited by change, you are exercising that muscle. And when that change comes faster than you're able to rest that muscle, that decision-making, you become fatigued in it. You end up being so exhausted, you become risk-averse and paralyzed in your decision-making because like, why am I making a decision? It's just going to change again anyway, right? Yeah. Those of you listening to this, if you have not read Andy Crouch's book, 
uh, strong and weak, just go buy it now. It is worth its weight in gold. And he, in this book, describes the ideal kind of environment and dynamic for human flourishing as the intersection of high vulnerability and high authority, right? And so he kind of creates this two by two that has high and low vulnerability and high and low authority, one on each axis. And vulnerability, he defines as meaningful risk and authority as meaningful action. In other words, agency, right? Agency is meaningful action. And we have just been in a liminal age. We are in the liminal age and we're not, we can't see our way out of it yet, but we've been there for probably longer than we think. Before the pandemic even started, we were, we were definitely accelerating in a trajectory toward this space. And in that space, when your vulnerability is high for a long period of time, without an authority or an ability to have meaningful action, i.e. when you are on lockdown and you're not able to do anything to change it, your authority drops from high to low. And so when you have high vulnerability and low authority, you're in a quadrant Andy Crouch calls suffering, right? Mm -hmm. And when you're there, the temptation is going to be, well, if I can't increase my agency, then at least I should decrease my vulnerability, but that moves you into disconnection and avoidance. And so that is the least healthy of the spaces. And it's hard to, it's hard, it's so hard, but the only way back into flourishing is to go back into the quadrant that he describes as suffering. So you have to increase your vulnerability first and then your agency because exercising agency actually requires risk if it's going to be meaningful. And so that temptation, like to bring this back to the airport illustration, when traveling with my wife and kids somewhat recently, we didn't quite have enough time, at least as far as I thought and believed, to get some food. So it's just like, just honey, like go eat a fig bar. And she has low blood sugar. And she did not like that decision at all. But I was stressed and I felt like my vulnerability was high. So I didn't have any control over the time frame that we were forced into. And so what I did was try to lower my vulnerability and just say, let's not take that risk. And so that actually was not helpful. It wasn't flourishing for me or her. Yeah. And so that's what we're talking about when we're talking about kind of agency amnesia. Yeah. And, and, and just think about, well, you mentioned that this decision making fatigue or however we call it, it was accelerated during before the pandemic. But think about how it went in a hyperdrive during the pandemic. I was just remembering that when maybe February or March of 2020, when we realized something was about to happen and we had to go ahead and get your face mask and all these different oh, types yeah. of masks. And this will work. I, I have a specific memory of someone telling me that I needed to shave off my beard because it wouldn't create a seal under the mask. Mm-hmm. And the issue here is not, you know, what you believe about COVID and all that stuff. The issue is think about all the decisions that we were forced to make. For me, it was, do I keep my beard or not? But that started a thousand minor decisions. And then we had to start deciding, are these decisions that we're making life or death decisions or not? You know, and so it's just amazing. That puts us in this place where maybe we just ignore everything or maybe every decision matters uh, for our survival. We just don't know. But that's not a place where we flourish when we think about decision-making in that way. Yeah, because that ambiguity and that uncertainty, because what you're describing too is just like, there's the in the moment belief that you're taking meaningful action by masking. And then there's the realization you find out later that that was almost more of a surface precaution. It, It wasn't nearly as effective as we thought it was. And, you know, for whatever reason, that kind of, backfilling awareness that we can't trust that guidance as much as we thought we could, man, that actually is super discouraging when it comes in a time and a context of the circumstance that it is especially meaningful, those small right. actions. And right. so to feel robbed of that is actually kind of, you know, in an experiential sense, it's really understandable. Even if like, I I don't regret wearing a mask. I still, you know, I just last Sunday was feeling under the weather. And so I wore a mask to church. It's not a big deal. But when you don't feel like there's anything you can do to change the situation and you've kind of infused the meaning into that action, it has a disproportionate impact when you find out it actually wasn't that meaningful. Yes. 
Yeah, there was a study uh, done by the National Bureau of Economic Research. And what the study showed was that the more people could relate their actions and decisions to real life consequences, the more that they tried to contribute to a cause greater than themselves. So hmm. individuals who related the consequence to their own behavior are more likely to contribute to climate change mitigation or to donate money and gifts to charitable causes and to share money with others to actually go vote or to donate blood. In other words, when we believe that our decisions have real world uh, effects, we're more likely to make decisions and join in with causes greater than ourselves. So it's it's weird because I love, I actually love the serenity prayer that they use in, in the recovery movement. Brad, it's it's dodging me right now. Can you say it for me? Oh yeah, was it uh, God? God help us to change the things that we can, and to trust you with the things that we can't, or or to not and the wisdom the to know the difference. There you go. Yeah, yeah, totally. And what you're saying is that prayer is so good. But what you're saying almost is that we didn't even know what that prayer meant in the midst of all the <laughs> pandemic. Well, yeah, because the prevailing wisdom pre-pandemic didn't work during the pandemic. That's part of the liminal dynamic that we're experiencing is the wisdom before doesn't seem to hold up when put under that stress test, as well as, and this actually gets into the next point that I'm going to kick to you here around our imaginative capacity, but we have been operating off of a really foolish, actually, understanding of where we can best exercise our agency and how we can best affect the world around us. It's pretty backwards, isn't it? It is. It is. So you start feeling like your decisions and actions don't really make a difference or you start to wonder if they do. What ends up happening is we're designed to be connected with others. So we do low risk connection. We get connected online, which can be a lot less risky than connected to people in real life. So the result is we're overconnected in all these areas. We have less agency. We have less ability to affect change. So for instance, let's say that there's a news story that comes out of some podunk town in some state on the other side of the country. Well, we're connected with that and we might get all fired up about whatever that news story is but we actually can't do anything to change the, the issue that's happened in this small town in a state that we've never been to. And yet we mm. feel so connected to it. Whereas we're underconnected in the areas where we have the most influence. I mean, think about just city council elections and how we could be involved mm. there or showing up to the monthly school board meeting or even going to feed the homeless in our area. I mean, that is something that we could do to make real change each week, but it's so much easier to be overconnected in areas where we have less agency that we don't even think about what we could do right mm. here and right now in the real world. Yeah. Anxiety and stress are the antithesis of imagination. And so mm. when you are experiencing stress and anxiety, the first thing to go besides a lack of, you know, besides sleep is going to be is your imagination and your imaginative capacity, right? And so when our attention is constantly diverted and drawn into directions where we don't have agency or the ability to resolve that anxiety with meaningful action, then it actually saps all of this energy out of our imaginative capacity and is expended in a way that actually has no effect. And that becomes this doom spiral, right? It's kind of like, you know, you mentioned the recovery movement. So like, you know, an alcoholic and they drink too much, so they are a bad husband. And because they know they're a bad husband, they start drinking more. And it becomes this feedback loop that gets in the way and diminishes our capacity, not just for imagination, but really to bearing the image of God that we're made in, right? Yeah. Because we're right. called to be fruitful and multiply, but when you lose your imaginative capacity, you settle for just existing and surviving. Yeah. And notice even how in that image bearing, that statement of be fruitful and multiply, it's about action. It's about agency. Yeah. And we have settled or we are just in a liminal space where it's safer, as you said, to just be, to just exist, to just survive. 
And you kind of just feel like that's all you can do and you have the capacity for, right? In a lot of ways, the imaginative capacity, this kind of third dimension of loss of capacity is really kind of the com combination of the loss of emotional or relational capacity and the loss of, uh, you know, decision-making capacity. And man, I just want to kind of validate those of you listening who are leaders, maybe you're the leader of a nonprofit and you have to raise financial support. You know, you understand that when you are talking to potential donors, it is helpful and they want and validly need to know that their contribution is going to have an impact, right? They need to know that their action of giving to your cause or your vision is going to be meaningful, right? And so that's how you frame, you know, end of year giving pitches or what have you. The problem is like, we know this in kind of certain specific areas, but we don't realize how much this is actually hardwired into how we are like, this is actually part of our anthropology, right? And so leaders, if you're experiencing this, you've probably been asked at some point in the last several months to a year, especially once the lockdown ended and people kind of had a chance to take a deep breath. You know, somebody asked you, Hey, what's your three to five year plan? <laughs> yes. Yeah. We, I've been asked that. If somebody asks me that again, I'm going to scream, John, I'm, I'm going to overstate this and I'll probably regret it. But the amount of certainty that you have in your answer to that question of what your five-year plan is, is probably proportionate and opposite to how much you are actually honest with the difficulties and challenges facing you. Yeah. Right. I don't sure. think you can give a five-year plan realistically. And I'm, I'm kind of like losing my mind every time I see another, you know, how to blog about here's five steps to getting back on track with your vision plan pre-pandemic or whatever, right? We don't need tips and tricks. You know, that old OG video game magazine, tips and tricks, when, you know, whichever of your friends got that newest issue, they were invited over and it was a race to invite them over first. Oh right? yeah. The Nintendo magazine. Yes. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. We don't need more yeah. of that crap. We need the game genie, right? We don't need tips and tricks. We need to have the rules changed internally. We need to be rewired. We need to actually see this differently. And I don't know, maybe here's a crazy idea, John, maybe we shouldn't return to the philosophy of leadership that was birthed out of the church growth movement when that approach clearly did not prepare the church for the year of our Lord, 2016, Never mind 2020, right? Now, I don't know what the alternative is to that, our church still has a vision statement. I'm not trying to say like throw the baby out with the bathwater or anything. Right. I'm saying that maybe the way that we are prioritizing and understanding our own leadership roles needs to be rebuilt in some very fundamental ways because the infrastructure and the architecture of our leadership clearly did not withstand the seismic activity of the last several years. Right. I, I don't know, Brad, having those, uh, those video game cheat codes was pretty nice. I mean, I still remember up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, DA <laughs> and the start button. And I loved how that set you up, but, okay, um, yeah, but that's more game genie than tips and tricks, right? Like the tips and tricks was the walkthrough, yeah. you know? Uh, we, okay. Your point is a good one. Okay. So that was just the loss of capacity. That was two out of three. The last one that we need to kind of explore here is disorientation. Right. So we've gone from loneliness to a loss of capacity. Now we're at disorientation. And really, this is just that experience of, wait, what, what the hell's going on? Which end is up? Can what was safely assumed before still be safely assumed? Like is true North still true? Or is it, or is it even North anymore? Right. It's, it's not like, Hey, I need a new compass. It's like, was it right to orient toward true North? Yeah. Right? Yeah, and I think I use the example when we started planting New City in 2014. New City, I'm in the Miami, I'm just north of Miami area, and culture was changing so fast. You know, I use the example that at first I thought we were playing baseball and I just needed to learn the rules better and get better at running the bases and hitting bats, to use that analogy. But then I realized we weren't even playing baseball at all. We were playing mm. a completely different sport. I was so disoriented at how fast just people's underlying assumptions were, how they decided what was true. I was just reorienting to what what is this game that we're playing? You know, we see in our culture now there is a pervasive uncertainty and distrust. Mm. Some have called this the death of expertise. So 
we have a million news sources and we have no clue which ones are reliable. Within the church world, there has been scandal and abuse. There's been leadership implosions. There's been so much social change. What you say now might be cancelable in three to five years. Hmm. We've already talked about Damas work or not. And so everything is uncertain. The ground is moving underneath us. Brad, where are some more areas that you actually see this playing out, this uncertainty, this disorientation? Yeah, I mean, that's the money question, right? Because this is such a huge box. You know, depending on how active you are, especially on Twitter, but really any, you know, social media platform, which we're going to talk about more in part two of this, there are so many different outworkings of this kind of pervasive default of distrust and uncertainty, right? And especially as it's directed externally. For families, you know, John, you were sharing about how somebody said to you, like, you know, I really love my dad in real life but I don't like my dad talking about politics on social media. Yes, There is this kind of disconnect between our online and our in-person personas that makes our engagement with either one of them a lot more fraught with difficulty and uncertainty and a lack of safety, right? Parents, whichever kind of cultural end of the spectrum you are coming from on the question of your kids in public school, there is an uncertainty and a distrust and anxiety around wondering and stressing out whether they'll be taught an implicit white supremacy that's embedded in the curriculum, or maybe you are more worried about CRT and the 1619 project shaping their kids' understanding of national history. It doesn't matter. Are your kids going to be taught traditional gender norms or modern gender ideology? No matter where you fall on that, the point I'm trying to make is like, that is not assumed anymore. Right. Everybody's asking that question. And that in and of itself, before you even get to the answer, and yes. whether we even yeah. debate which answer is the right one, the fact that we're asking that question is the liminality we're trying to describe. Like yes. Because when was the last time that happened? Right. I think it's so interesting in these areas where it, we're not debating the issues, you and me right now. We're talking mm. about how the issues are even talked about and the disorientation that that causes. That the issues are being debated. Yes. Yeah. I mean, John, do you remember long ago, age and stage and phase of life and ministry where the kinds of questions people would ask you were like the problem of evil and suffering yeah. and theodicy? And wouldn't it be great for somebody to actually ask about the theological questions we were trained to answer? Yeah, I know the answers to those. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, absolutely. I had one person recently, probably the first person in two years, want to have a conversation around some of those things. They were like, you know, I'm really sorry. I know I feel like this is probably not helpful or relevant. And you're really busy. I'm just like, you know, you have no idea. Thank you. Thank <laughs> yeah. you so much. Like, I was like tearing up. What other questions do you have? I just, yes. I just cleared my whole day. <laughs> yes, yes. Can, do you want to, can you stay longer? Right. Let's just keep going with this, right? Because, yeah. you know, students who are in high school, are right now asking, is higher education even worth the financial expense anymore? Mm -hmm. Because the way that we have set up, our society has gotten to the point where, good Lord, John, I don't know how much you paid for your undergraduate education, but it's something like three and four times what I paid for it right now. Wow. That's insane. I don't even know how you plan ahead for that. It's going to prompt that question when the cost yeah. is so much higher. Leaders, this isn't just people who are just trying to navigate everyday life. It's also people who are responsible for other people trying to navigate life, right? Pastors are wondering, can I trust that people are going to stay if the sermon application pushes back on a partisan political issue? We've been seeing a great sort happen, not just geographically, but also ecclesiologically. And as things have fractured, we're seeing people move and switch churches, not because of a disagreement over theology, but a disagreement over partisan politics. I'm resisting the temptation to keep going there. We had somebody come to our church in the last several months who, man, she just put her finger on it. And when I asked her, like, hey, what brought you here? And she said, you know, it just feels like my church moved away from me, even though I stayed in place. What did she mean by that? What she was describing was a pre-pandemic, a church that was very intentionally apolitical, suddenly 
having a lot of sermons and sermon series that included major culture war topics. And that was confusing for her because it was not something that she was looking for or asking for. And again, this created a disorientation of like, I had a break from church because of the lockdown in our area. And when I come back in person, it feels like it's a different church. Wow. So disorienting. Oh, it really is. Gosh, I actually made uh, the connection the other day that many of the kind of stresses that I'm experiencing right now as a church planter and as a pastor of a church that has only been around for about six years is (laughs) the last three years has been pandemic and post-pandemic. And the first three years were awesome. (laughs) right that's great yeah that's basically a summary of the table's history right but you know upon returning it's taken me a whole year after we began regathering for weekly worship for me to put my finger on the reality that what my current role as a pastor feels like is the closest equivalent is what they tell us as pastors when we take over as a lead pastor at a new church that we've never been to or been a pastor for And all of the change management challenges and having to kind of rebuild trust from the ground up because you don't have any existing relationship or equity to draw on, all of those dynamics, I feel now, and yet I'm at the same church. And it's so weird because you don't know to expect it or anticipate because it's so many of the same people, right? Yeah. So there's so many ways that I don't want to belabor the point around how this kind of disorientation works itself out externally, but it just feels like there's no safe assumptions anymore. Correct. And that is exhausting. That affects our loss of capacity. And it also, it really can be isolating because it takes so much work and effort to connect. Brad, you keep using the word assumptions. Is there a way that that applies to us internally and not just an external cultural pressure? Yeah, yeah. The language and the term deconstruction is being used a lot right now. It's even being referred to as the deconstruction movement. And I think there are many ways that's most often, almost exclusively actually, applied in areas of faith yes, and spirituality. True. But I think that there is a very similar, almost copy-paste experience of this internal disorientation around just kind of baseline life assumptions. And because they're assumptions, these are things that I don't think many people are used to actually even naming or putting a label to because they are so intrinsic to like kind of how we have been operating and we don't even know to look here as a source of some of the things that we're experiencing. Let me use a, an extended illustration here to name what I'm talking about. I grew up in St. Louis and a lot of people don't realize that St. Louis is on a, a really significant fault line called the New Madrid fault line. And uh, St. Louis city is just North of a region that's referred to as the New Madrid seismic zone. And this area experienced a series of catastrophic earthquakes between December 16th of 1811 and April 1812, right? So over a five month period, a series of earthquakes rocked the Mississippi River Valley that was so catastrophic. It was so severe, John, that the Mississippi River ran backwards for several hours. That's crazy. Yeah, the Mississippi River ran backwards for several hours. There is now an 18-mile-long lake that did not exist before that five-month period. Insane. It just rearranged the topography of the entire region. I'm glad that happened 200 years ago and not when we were both in seminary in St. Louis. Yes, even more so considering the fact that when we were in seminary in St. Louis, I was at the time a chaplain candidate So going through training as a chaplain in the Missouri Army National Guard, and I was attached to the Joint Force Headquarters in Jefferson City. And as part of my role, I got to participate in the State Emergency Management Agency, their disaster response planning. So they had this scenario, and their scenario of the worst kind of disaster response that the Missouri National Guard might be called up for was a kind of comparable earthquake hitting the St. Louis region. And we're about 100 years overdue according to seismologists. It's important to know, if you don't know or not familiar with St. Louis, there is something amazing about that city in its brick. St. Louis brick is unique. It is only in St. Louis, and it's this bright red color because it's made out of a mud that has a distinct color from the Mississippi River in that region. And it's beautiful. I love it. It's such a St. Louis thing. If you've seen the pictures of Bush Stadium, if you're a Cardinals fan and therefore 
right <laughs> in your baseball opinions. Uh, <laughs> that red brick color of the stadium, that's St. Louis brick, right? Yeah. The problem with it is almost the entire city is built with it. And the Army Corps of Engineers did their assessments of the infrastructure and discovered that something between 80 to 90% of the buildings in St. Louis City would turn to dust with an earthquake of this magnitude. So you would go from amazing architecture, historic city, and overnight, not even overnight, in a moment, it would disappear in a cloud. And there would be only one bridge still standing in the city. And this one bridge, again, if you're from St. Louis, you know Manchester Road, it's a two-lane road. And so there'd be exactly one bridge into the city from which to evacuate people who are displaced because nobody's home is still standing. That one two-lane bridge for delivering supplies, treating the wounded, you name it. And so an entire plan had to be shaped and made around that potentiality. You know, it's interesting now that you're talking about this. I remember that when I lived in St. Louis, um, maybe the History Channel or one of those learning channels, I actually watched a documentary about this possibility. Mm. And let's just say I did not sleep well that night, knowing that this is a possibility. Very scary. But let me ask you this, Brad. Great story. Cool story, bro. Yeah, cool story, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Okay, that's the end of the podcast. No, how does this uh, story help us as we talk about deconstruction of assumptions? Okay, so let's put it this way. The pandemic was the earthquake. Mm. And really, not just the pandemic, there have been many pre-shocks culturally with all the change we've been experienced before and since, pre and after shocks. The brick is all of our assumptions have been turned to dust. And the bridge, one bridge, is the mediating institutions or the normal traditional means of rebuilding new assumptions, identity, formation, et cetera, that we are used to operating off of. And so when those institutions we either can't trust because their structural integrity is in question, you can't trust it, you can't use it, then you're not going to find healing. You're not going to find supplies and resources for your diminished capacity. You're not going to be able to get a break and get out of there when you don't feel like you have shelter anymore on an existential level. Yeah. And so when you say those mediating institutions, the illustration of the bridge, you're talking about everything from the news media to churches to the way the economy set up. Is that what you mean by institutions? Yeah, I'm talking about those intersections of community, ritual, meaning, and purpose that have been the historic means of human beings receiving an identity and being formed and shaped in every anthropological dimension, ethically and morally, spiritually, socially, emotionally, relationally, all of those things. We learn those things. They're the laboratories and the greenhouses for, for growth. And as meeting institutions, they often, they create the firebreaks that help slow change down and have a testing ground before they're tried on in mass. And so the difficulty with the, the combat engineers, what their report was saying, or the Army Corps of Engineers, excuse me, their evaluation was there are some bridges that are going to be clearly untrustworthy because they don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. There's going to be one bridge that is, we can verify and say that structurally it will be sound, but there are a whole bunch that we will not be able to tell. And even if they are still there, we can't trust them to hold the weight of our need. We can't trust them. And that has to be incorporated into the plan. And thus, to extend the analogy into what we're talking about, that has to be understood as a dynamic of our liminal age if we are going to rebuild those bridges and institutions. Yeah. We have to understand that and do business with it. Well, the good news, Brad, is I think everyone feels this on some level, even if they can't put words on it. Even as we've talked about these things, I'm doing a little bit of self-reflection on what's going on inside of me and and sort of making sense of some of the things that I feel. And I'm betting a lot of people feel in terms of reactivity, anxiety, relational turbulence. That is just so normal right now. So normal. Yeah, that reactivity is just downstream. Those are ways that we are just trying to cope and trying to kind of survive the experience of this liminal age. Yeah, that's such a great way to put it, because over the last eight years, 
even as I've interacted on social media, I've sort of watched the back and forth on these discussions about issues. And I kept saying to myself, I don't think we need to be talking about the issues as much as we need to be talking about how we talk about the issues. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I think we're stabbing at something here. We're getting to something when you say the reactivity is really downstream from everything else we're feeling in this liminal age. It is an age of crisis, but the good news is that crisis can precede renewal. That's how Mark Sayers puts it. When we experience instability in our personal lives, it makes us ask deeper questions. Mm. It makes us dig deeper. It makes us find deeper roots. It reminds me of that passage in Matthew 7, where Jesus says this. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. Stop there real quick. That sounds very unstable. Rain, floods, wind, beating on the house. Mm -hmm. But then Jesus says, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. You know, what's interesting about your connecting that passage to this conversation is I think most people hear that passage as a good caution and also an encouragement to trust and mm-hmm. believe in Jesus individually. Yes. And I think it's it's understandable that somebody may hear that as life sucks right now and it's really hard and I'm experiencing all of this instability and this liminality, whatever the hell that means. It's because I don't trust Jesus enough. Is that right? Yeah, and I right. think we would say, maybe yes. that might be true, but ultimately whether it is or not is actually irrelevant to the point of that passage, right? Because no individual's house is firmly built upon the rock. We all build our houses on a mixture of rock and sand. Yes. And when the ground shifts and moves underneath us, we need to read Matthew 7 as Jesus intended, which is as an invitation to rebuild Mm. on a better foundation continually. It is not a one-time thing. It is an ongoing posture of repentance and rebuilding of foundation. And you often don't realize it's sand and not rock until the ground shifts underneath you. Until the ground shifts underneath you. That's so right. And I get it. That can be a gift. And I know how trite that can sound or feel to someone who's like, you just got done validating my experience to the hilt around feeling lonely and a loss of capacity and totally disoriented, not knowing which end is up. And now you're like, this is a gift, right? Yes. And I know how hard it is to believe that that's possible when our imagination doesn't have the fuel it needs. Mm. Survival mode. Yes. If we can just suspend our scarcity mentality long enough to let Jesus teach and show us a better way, and then as he says in Matthew 7, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them versus those who do them, build them their house on the rock. So part of this re- does require a quote-unquote stepping out in faith and a trust that Jesus will provide the power to fuel our agency and our meaningful action in our doing of his words, because he's promised his word will not return void. I just keep thinking about Chris Bruno and his comment about how we are mere humans, but what we're invited into is being fully human. And this is part of it. You can't reconstruct and rebuild without deconstructing. And Jesus, in his goodness, has actually done a lot of that work for us. And yeah, all at once is really tough and hard. But there is some opportunity there for sure. And part of the thing that keeps us from jumping on that opportunity is the very thing that he's trying to get us to detach from, that sand, so that we can reattach in the right direction. Yeah. Absolutely. We've really tried to explore how this liminal age feels. And I think in getting to that feeling, we would be in error if we just sort of said, okay, we acknowledge how it feels and we stop there. Yeah. I think 
as you use the phrase downstream, we need to kind of get further upstream. Mm. Um, we need to see what the foundation under the brick is. We need to dig mm. deeper, which is exactly what we're planning on doing. Today, we've explored the symptoms and how those symptoms affect us and how it feels day to day. But in part two, as we explore liminal age, we'll dive a lot deeper into the disruptions that are causing the liminal age and the implications of those disruptions for us. Let's do it. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks, Brad. See ya. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, text it to a friend. Please take a minute and rate this podcast. Leaving a review helps other people find us and connect. You can send us questions or feedback by emailing us at posteverythingpod at gmail.com. Thank you.